Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Good evening, everyone. We'll begin the readout tonight with control of Congress still hanging in the balance. We still, still don't know who will control the House of Representatives. And we are awaiting results from two of the three states that will determine control of the Senate. In Nevada, election officials in Clark County said that they still have more than 50,000 ballots to count. And in Arizona, where Democratic incumbent Senator Mark Kelly faces Trump acolyte Blake Masters, Maricopa County officials say they have more than 400,000 ballots to count. And joining me now is Steve Kornacki at the big board to sort it all out. Steve, bring us some reality and maybe a little uh, de-stressing. <laughs> well, we, uh, we should learn some more in the next hour or two, uh, next two hours, I would say. And obviously, Arizona, Nevada, again, the stakes. The Democrats go two for two in the Senate races here. That'll do it. They'll control the Senate officially. If there's a split here, then that Georgia runoff on December 6th will be decisive. So start in Arizona, where in Maricopa County, officials just had a press conference within the last hour to kind of lay out their plan. Here's the lay of the land right now. The Democrat Mark Kelly has a lead here just south of 100,000 votes over Blake Masters. There was another update earlier uh, today, this afternoon, from Pima County, where Tucson is. That helped Kelly. There was a small rural update that came in shortly after that helped Masters just a little bit, though. But all the attention really is on Maricopa County. It's just so giant, so vast, population-wise, such a big part uh, of the overall electorate. So what we learned from election officials in Maricopa is that they're going to release we think sometime in Eastern time, the eight to nine hour Eastern time, they're going to release a batch of votes probably about the size of what they released last night, which was last night, 62,000 votes. Critically, it sounds like the votes they're going to release tonight are votes that were received over the weekend and on Monday. And what we saw last night, that was the type of vote that was released last night. That was a Democratic favorable vote. I mean, Kelly won the votes that were released last night by 12 points. If he does something like that again tonight, again, you can expect this, this lead to go up over 100,000 votes or so. The question really is there's a critical number of ballots. Uh, we've been thinking 275. They say it's 290,000, 290,000 ballots that were delivered by voters to the polls on Election Day. Those will not be included tonight, and that's going to kind of be the ball game because you can expect the Democrats to build on this lead. There's the possibility that this group of votes is a very Republican group of votes. So the question is, does Kelly build a big enough lead to withstand potentially a strong Republican showing in those votes that were delivered on Election Day? That's kind of the, the, the suspense in this race. So the Democrats are hoping uh, are hoping tonight to get uh, out uh, to, to get a uh, I, well, to go back to you. Sorry. 
Oh, wait, no, 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 back to me to get oh, away. Okay, I'm sorry. I thought I was here to like, break news. Oh, so, no, no, no. I don't want to. Uh, so, yeah, so anyway, the Democrats are just I'm trying to. I'm in suspense here. You got to <laughs> tell me what you, what, give me the, the, you know, the log line here. They just want to get that line. number up as much as they can because there is the potential that that 290,000 will be strongly Republican and can Kelly withstand it? That's kind of the, the big question here. So tonight it's about Democrats trying to build on the lead. And then tomorrow it's a question of will that final batch be Republican enough to eat away and erode it. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Steve Kornacki. We appreciate you. We're going to we're going to turn the Steve Kornacki machine off temporarily, but he turns on automatically whenever more votes come in. So those of who are, you know, your, your huge fan base out there on the social media, Steve, they'll, they'll know that you're still here. So raise your hand, wave, wave frantically if anything else comes Got in. It. Thank you, man. Appreciate you. OK, well, okay, well, there is still a lot that we do not know about the results in the midterm elections. There is a lot that we actually do know from exit polls about who voted and how they voted. And what about them has Republicans so agitated? It's the same broad dynamic as most elections in this country. A majority of white voters voted Republican, 58 percent to 40 percent for Democrats. And by gender, white women broke Republican as per usual, 53 percent to 45 percent, even with the repeal of Roe, losing control of your own body on the table. Demographically speaking, there was nothing especially unusual about how the vote broke down. Black voters voted overwhelmingly Democratic again. A majority of Latino voters stayed with the Democrats, too, despite Republican claims that Hispanics beyond Cuban-American conservatives in Miami-Dade County, Florida, were on the verge of joining the MAGA movement. And Asian-American voters continued their now decade-plus long drift toward the Democrats, too. As for other Republic, the other Republican narrative that black men were persuadable, that was also a no. Black men voted overwhelmingly Democratic again, including for Stacey Abrams. As usual, it was white voters in Georgia who rejected her candidacy for governor. But there are a few things that actually are notable about white voters when it comes to understanding why MAGA Republicans are just obsessed with things like wokeness. There's the group that saved democracy, young voters. Gen Z, you know, the generation that has done uh, active shooter drills for their entire scholastic lives. Well, this year, as in most elections, voters under 30 broke overwhelmingly for Democrats, this time by nearly 30 points. But what was unusual was the millennial and Gen Z vote was substantial, bigger than normal, right, for a midterm election. And its Democratic lean actually included white voters under 30 who favored Democrats by 18 points the only age block of white voters to give a majority to Democrats. And when you break down voters by education and gender, white college graduates also favor Democrats only slightly, but they did. And among those college graduates, 56% of college educated white women voted Democratic too. And that is our Republicans' biggest enemy is wokeness. The reason why they are so fixated on destroying college as a thing and returning it to the hands of white elites only, calling for things like mandatory viewpoint diversity surveys and pushing to ban the boogeyman of critical race theory. Republicans want to alter college to make it less woke because that's where those young people learn about all those messy things like history and racism, sexuality and gender identity, all those things that make them empathetic. And as I'm sure this wise audience knows, empathy is the antidote to fascism. But wait, there's more. With all that Christian nationalism talk from the Republican election deniers, secular Americans who don't regularly attend religious services overwhelmingly voted Democratic, too. Turns out they are the ones who are prone to Jesus-style empathy. But there is one thing that seems to really, really vex Republicans. 
The party completely underestimated how American women in this country would respond to losing 50 years of reproductive freedom. 68% of single women voted for Democrats, compared to just 42% of married women. After all, you can't have all the single ladies out there making their own choices about their own bodies and finances and the like. Am I right? Fox News host Jesse Waters, well, he's got a solution. Single women are breaking for Democrats by 30 points. And this makes sense when you think about how Democrat policies are designed to keep women single. But once women get married, they vote Republican. Married women, married men go for Republicans by double digits. But single women and voters under 40 have been captured by Democrats. So we need these ladies to get married. And it's time to fall in love and just settle down. Guys, go put a ring on it. I feel like the thing should have put a ring on it. Let's bring in my panel, Charles Blow, New York Times columnist and MSNBC political analyst, David Hogg, gun safety advocate, former Parkland student and March for Our Lives co-founder, and Susan Del Percio, Republican strategist and MSNBC political analyst who wins the derby because you were laughing uh, at Jesse Waters here. <laughs> I mean, look, I mean, he said single women and um, young voters have been captured captured by the Democratic Party. How do, um, they, how do they do that? Like, do they throw out a net? With and a just, big net, okay, mm-hmm. pretty much. So what do you make of this? I mean, the, the, the thing is, is that there is a truism that white voters, including white women, are Republicans. 60% of white Americans are just Republicans. They just are, right? And so they just vote, you know, Jersey versus Jersey, Team Jersey. They just vote Republican. Um, Roe did change and scramble it a little bit. And now you're seeing with white voters under 30 they vote to go to the cookout. They're voting with like non-white voters. They're starting to behave like and also white voters who are secular starting to behave more like non-white voters. Well, yeah, because also it's cultural how these younger people are growing up. They grew up with the right to control their bodies, first of all. Second of all, even when it comes to issues like same-sex marriage, they are used to seeing same-sex couples. It's very normal. And now there's a threat. If their unions are, their marriages are legal or not, these are things that really rile up even conservative young Republican voters because it's contrary to everything they've known. So I think that and when it comes to other, you know, suburban white women, another area that tends to go Republican, even if they're independent, it's because they don't want crazy I mean, the Trump effect that's gone on, especially I think we see in the midterm elections with the candidates that lost, all Trump backed, it said, I don't want crazy. I want stability. I want control over my body. And even though I'm upset with Biden and I, the economy is going in the wrong direction, I'm still not going to go crazy because I believe in our country and I want to move forward. Yeah, actually, and I will. The only thing I will counter for you is, I mean, the economy is actually really strong. We have the strongest inflation, you know, uh, hit economy in the world. I mean, we're actually at a much better place than the rest of Europe. And I think we have like 3% unemployment, but we can, we can debate that. Okay. Remember the good old days when we used to just debate <laughs> yeah. politics as a, as, as in normal world. Let me go to one of the young folks. Let's go to David Hogg and let you speak for yourself. Because the thing is, is that I, somebody tweeted, um, you know, I'm not active on Twitter anymore, but I do sometimes scroll over and just see what people say. And somebody said, I thought something really smart that the generation that had to go through active shooter drills got their payback in this election. 
Um, and I'm wondering what you think about that, because if you look at even issues like guns, which tended to be an issue that if you say guns were an important issue, you tended to vote Republican. This time it swung way the other way. If you said guns were an important issue, you voted heavily Democrat regardless of race. Um, what did you make of the performance, the huge performance of Gen Z and millennial voters in this election? I mean, look, it speaks for itself. As you said earlier, the mass shooting generation is now graduating from their high schools, assuming they survive, because unfortunately, not all of us do. And we're entering the voting booths and we're voting out politicians who our entire lives have, have protected guns like the AR-15 instead of children. It, it's really not rocket science. You know, there was a generation earlier on that went through, um, you know, nuclear drills at school. And then we saw some of the largest arms control you know, treaties in history um, to help reduce the nuclear stockpile. And I think we're going to see that with our generation as well. We're seeing that too, and not and we're not just entering the voting booths, we're also entering Congress. This election, Maxwell Alejandro Frost, a former colleague of mine from March for Our Lives, the organization we started after Parkland, he just won his election for Congress that I had started working on 15 months ago from my dining hall at, in college, getting on his kitchen cabinet calls. He won, defeating in his primary two former members of Congress and you know, a whole litany of other people. Our generation is fed up and we're tired of being not safe. It's not about being a Democrat or Republican, it's about doing the right thing. And the last thing I'll say, Joy, is that you know, there's calls now to raise the age to vote to 21 that I'm hearing Sorry. from conservatives, uh, commentators. How about you change your policies instead of changing who can vote? Yeah, and I've, I've, we've seen them in the past say the same thing about not letting women vote, even though most of the women in their world vote for them. But yeah, we've heard that too, that they just don't like the way people vote. So they're like, don't let them vote. Uh, Charles Blow, we, we've been there, haven't we, in our community, because they, they say the same thing about black voters. They're like, we'll just make sure they can't vote, because that's a way to solve the, the issue and they're not voting for us. There, was a, there were a lot of memes that were exploded in this election. And one of them was this idea that black men were suddenly going MAGA. They were running to the Republican Party. There was a you know, what do they call it? A Brexit or Brexit, whatever they called it, out of the Democratic Party. That turned out not to be true, including in the Stacey Abrams race. What did you make of the results of this election? Well, you know, it's really interesting to me because I look at it with a, a, a little bit of a longer lens. I, I look at it as a massive backlash against the protests of 2020, and it is still going on. If you listen to the 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 primary debates that Republicans are having among themselves, which I did, the word indoctrination kept coming up because many people who on the Republican side, many of them white people, were shocked that most of the people who came out to protest for black lives were actually their young white um, uh, sons and daughters. Most of the people who protested were not black. They were not Hispanic. They were white kids. Correct. And as soon as that protest was over, they were back in those state houses saying, how could this happen? How could it be our kids? And they over and over, they said, we can't. We, our kid, children have been indoctrinated. And they started to take steps to say this will stop indoctrination. We will we will change the way we talk about people, transgender people. We will change what can be said about race in this country. Wokeness just became a, a placeholder for actual knowledge. They no longer wanted their children to have knowledge that would make them active and empathetic to people who were hurting. 
And that is what we keep we kept seeing even into this midterm election. But those young people said, this is just the truth. And this is just where it is. And I may differ with you on economic policy. I may differ with you on international intervention. But I have a friend who is trans. And I love that person. I have a friend who is black. And I don't want that person to fear for their lives or get shot. I have a friend who is who is a son or daughter of an immigrant. And I don't want them to look at kids in cages and think that that could be them. Those those young people, regardless of where they stand on other issues, looked at their adults, even on their own side and says, you've gone too far. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I'm going to go back to you, David, on this, because that is the thing is that anti-wokeness and this war on wokeness, including in the state where you live in Florida, where this is his, you know, the governor's whole thing is to, to destroy wokeness. It's to destroy empathy, because as Charles just said, when you're empathetic, you want people to have health care. When you're empathetic, you want kids to be able to go to preschool. When you're empathetic, I mean, I saw it with the Parkland kids, with you kids. Because when we gathered you all together, I remember we did like a little symposium and all of you together. You guys had actually reached out because you were predominantly white kids and brought black and brown kids into the room with you and said, we want to share, you know, this opportunity that we have to communicate with the world with them. We want it to be a multiracial uh, coalition. And that was what you guys did by yourself. Nobody told you to do that. So I want to give you that that opportunity talk about that. Your generation is the thing that Charles just talked about that the right fears the most. Y'all awoke. Um, Do you think that that is something that all of these policies to try to, you know, erase history and things from schools is going to change that? No. In fact, I think it's going to completely backfire on them, to be honest with you, Uh, because I can tell you as somebody who started out in political organizing when I was 17 years old, uh, the most powerful tool that we use to mobilize young people to create the largest youth voter turnouts in American history in 2018, in 2020, and now in 2022, is that it is telling young people what the adults don't want you to do in the first place. Um, you know, I, I think the reason, Joy, why they're going uh, to war against education and empathy is because they know that education and empathy are the roots of, of, of justice. And in order for these these people with totalitarian tendencies that are literally going to war on education to stay in power, the power structure that they have is rooted in injustice. It's rooted in the fact that we live in a country where we let land vote and be represented more than people as part of the legacy of slavery that we have in this country and the, the, the Senate being built up as an institution to defend that. It's, you know, there's such a multitude of factors that play into it. But really what I want to come back to is the fact that young people have turned out now in the past three cycles in the highest rates ever in American history. And it's not like we're just canceling out each other's votes. We are very clearly voting disproportionately one way more than any generation is currently. We voted over 15 points for Democrats. In fact, a bit more than that. The important message for Democrats to know tonight is that if you want to win in 2024, you have to listen to young people and you have to do your job and represent us or you won't win. Uh, listen, listen to this young man when he speaks, because his generation is the most diverse generation in American history and they vote in. Thank you, Charles Blow, David Hogg, Susan Del Percio. Thank you all. Up next on The Readout, Trump's long losing streak continues. And now there's a growing chorus of Republicans who want to dump him. 
Oh, Trump! While others are fighting to keep the MAGA flame burning. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Donald Trump has famously said many times that he doesn't like losers. And the same goes for his party, with several Republicans and conservative pundits blaming Trump for the red wave that never was. The Republican Party needs to do a really deep introspection look in the mirror right now, because this is this is an absolute disaster. Almost every one of these Trump endorsed candidates that you see in competitive states has have lost. And it's 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 a huge loss for for Trump. Definitely not a Republican wave. That's for darn sure. I was in charge of Guam, so I want to take credit for that. Rupert Murdoch, whose outlets fed Trump's lies to the base for years, has also turned his back on Trump. Check out these headlines from the Murdoch-owned Wall Street Journal and New York Post. Trump is like the Republican Party's biggest loser. Trump sabotaged the Republican midterms. The tabloid even depicted its fallen leader as Humpty Dumpty, alongside the rhyme, Don, who couldn't build a wall, had a great fall. Can all of Trump's men put the party back together again? Not super clever. The Post is offering a solution to its own question in a separate cover. Ron DeFuture has been anointed as the party's new boss, or should I say, new god. Trump, we can imagine, is stewing over all of that and more. The New York Times is reporting that he is furious, throwing blame and quite possible ketchup at Sean Hannity and even Melania for their shoddy political advice. Anybody but blaming himself. Joining me now is Tim Miller, MSNBC political analyst and writer at large at The Bulwark. He is outside the Maricopa County election facility in Arizona. Also joining me, Robert Jones, president and founder of the Public Relations Research Institute, PRRI. Great pollster outfit. Um, I just got Tim Miller, my hot little hands, a statement from Donald Trump. It's two pages of ranty, ranty, ranty. And he's screaming about News Corp, which is Fox, Wall Street Journal, the no longer great New York Post, bring back call. It's all in for Governor Ron DeSanctimoni as an average Republican governor with great public relations, blah, blah, blah. So he's freaking out about them. Um, he claims he saved Ron DeSantis' campaign in 2017 by sending in the FBI to stop the theft of his election against Andrew Gillum in the race against Andrew Gillum. He goes on and on and on. He even uses the word crackhead in here. It's a lot. He's losing his mind uh, over DeSantis being chosen by the party. What do you make of, the, of these little things? First of all, all of these suck-ups to Trump, like Chris Christie and um, Lindsey Graham, who just were literally laying at Trump's feet, getting petted, now all of a sudden saying, oh, he sucks, and his reaction. 
Yeah, some of these Republicans are sa- starting to sound like me, Joy. Uh, never Trumpers. The water is warm. It took them seven years, but okay, I guess. Uh, better late than never. Um, but look, I, I, I think the question is, will these guys actually have the courage, the you-know-what, to take Trump head on? I'm still pretty skeptical of that. You know, we've been through all this from Access Hollywood, yeah. you know, Charlottesville, January 6th, grumbling, grumbling. And then and then they go back, you know, into Donald Trump's corner. So I'm skeptical it will last. Maybe it will. I hope it will. Um, as far as uh, as far as Trump himself is concerned, I, I, he doesn't like it. This is a guy that doesn't like to be this guy doesn't like to be criticized. But he kind of has a point. Every once in a while, he has a point. He kind of has a point about DeSantis. Yeah. He's saying, DeSantis does owe Donald Trump. DeSantis did totally suck up to Trump and do that ridiculous ad with his kids building a Lego wall. So, you know, I think that Trump in a lot of ways owns DeSantis. And the question is, will DeSantis and all these guys who have cowered time and time again actually take this moment where they're big losers and say, we got to beat this guy if we ever want to win again? I'm skeptical they will. I hope they do. We'll see. For those who think that they're going to, let's remember that Lindsey Graham called Trump a racist um, and all sorts of other nasty names. Marco Rubio went after his or his uh, progeny or whatever he was given by God uh, in the nether regions and tried that kind of a joke. Uh, and Ted Cruz uh, got went crazy when Trump called his wife ugly. And all three of them ended up as Trump's poodles. So if you want to know where this whole thing goes, that's where it goes. It winds up exactly where those three men, I think uh, Lindsey Graham once said, if we nominate Trump, we'll be destroyed and we'll deserve it. Only true thing he's ever said. Let me bring you in, Robbie, because the other thing is that the problem for Republicans is that Donald Trump is not just a former president or a politician to his base, which is a very evangelical, white evangelical, Christian nationalist, very insecure about the future base. He is a God. He is sent by God to run America forever. And so I want to let you look at a little bit of this ad that DeSantis has created, trying to replace him as God, trying to replace orange Jesus, I guess, with orange juice Jesus. Here's the ad. And on the eighth day, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a protector. So God made a fighter. God said, I need a family man. A man who would laugh and then sigh and then reply with smiling eyes. I think I'm going to laugh and then sigh. I mean, first of all, that's blasphemy. But second of all, is there any chance that that the the base that worships Trump is going to suddenly go, oh, wait a minute, Jesus is DeSantis. Yeah, it, it, it's indeed hard to know even where to begin um, with, with that ad. Um, but but I, I will say it, it is this messiah complex. It really is. And, and I think, again, it comes down to the fact that uh, they really do see the writing on the wall. It's exactly as your previous guests were saying, if you look at the youth vote, right, the upcoming next generation, uh, even in places like Georgia, you look at the under 50, over 50 breaks in Georgia, it's mm-hmm. astonishing. Right. And so I think the writing is on the wall. The country is changing around them. And I think there's no other no clearer place to see this than on abortion. Uh, right. It's, it's worth noting again, like it's only one in 10 Americans in a nationwide poll and in the exit polls that support a complete ban on abortion. And yet that's where the truck is headed, uh, you know, in the GOP. It, it's just 90 percent of Americans disagree 
uh, with that statement. And yet that that's where they're going. And so but I think for this base, for the white evangelical base, you know, their favorability of Trump is still two to one uh, favorable, you know, after impeachment, after insurrection, after, you know, you know, all of this stuff. And I got to ask you, because in Georgia, you had an actual pastor, the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, whose name is Raphael Warnock, pastor, Reverend Raphael Warnock, running against the guy who was parking in the parking lot waiting for his uh, former girlfriend to get an abortion, insisting that she do it so she wouldn't chicken out and has gotten we don't even know how many abortions and we don't know how many kids. And the evangelical vote in the, at least the white evangelical vote in Georgia went to guy number two. So, so where does their Christianity work when it comes to somebody who's actually paying for abortions? Apparently it ain't real. Yeah, I mean, it is fairly astonishing for a group that, you know, less than 20 years ago called itself values voters, right? And the moral <laughs> values voters, right? And if we kind of, that wasn't that long ago, right? But here we are uh, where, uh, you know, there's just no defense uh, of by their own measures, right? Uh, all these candidates are failing by their own measures. And yet, um, here they are. And I think it just goes to a real uh, corruption of a, a political moral core, uh, right? That, it, that it's, it's really a utilitarian, consequentialist, ends justifies the means sort of yeah. approach to politics. But that's never been, uh, you know, uh, that's not a principled Christian approach to politics. I mean, that's a Machiavellian uh, very, approach to politics. Very quick before we go, Tim Miller, are they going to be able to get the the, the faithful yeah. out to vote for, for Herschel Walker when the only thing at issue was whether he ought to be a senator and not whether it's control of the Senate. Well, I think it depends. Uh, look, here in Arizona, uh, you know, the, the votes looked pretty good for the Democrats today. And so if it turns out that Cal- uh, Cortez Masto wins in Nevada and that here in Arizona, Mark Kelly holds on, the Georgia race doesn't matter for control of the Senate. The Democrats will have control. So I think that maybe some of the faithful will turn out for Herschel. I think the bigger question is those Republicans around Atlanta who held their nose for Herschel Walker, are they going to go out to vote for him in a, <laughs> in a runoff? Uh, I don't I don't see it happening. So yeah. uh, they better hope that the Republicans win one of these two races so they have some motivation. <laughs> yeah, because if the question is, should Herschel Walker be a senator? It's a little hard to answer. Uh, Tim Miller and Robert Jones, thank you both very much. Uh, on the eighth day, God created the commercial break that's coming up. But up next on the reality eighth, the exit polls, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do more blacks for me. Um, there's one thing that is clear. Black voters are the backbone of the Democratic Party. And yet the party has still not figured out an effective way to mobilize them in many states. Stay with us. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. I'm asking you to do what you've done before. 
I need you to show up and vote. Because a vote is a kind of prayer for the world we desire for ourselves and for our children. A vote is about putting our faith into action. Senator Raphael Warnock was out in full force today ahead of Georgia's December Senate runoff election. The incumbent Democrat knows all too well that in order for the party to hang on to that Senate seat, they need to galvanize black voters. Indeed, black voters turned out in big numbers nationwide this midterm cycle. And black men once again destroyed the myth that they were defecting to Republicans. But in some states, the turnout models did not seem to work as well. States like Wisconsin, Ohio, Kentucky, Arkansas, North Carolina, Florida and Louisiana saw challenges in getting black voters to the polls. Even when in all but one of those cases, they had a black Democratic candidate on the statewide ballot. The problems were especially stark in Louisiana, where Democratic Senate candidate Gary Chambers posted this on social. What I want black voters in Louisiana to understand is John Kennedy still did not get more votes in his winning than there are black voters registered in the state of Louisiana. And if we ever decide to show up in numbers the way that we exist in this state, we can decide whatever election statewide we want to in this state. Joining me now is ESPN correspondent Angela Rye and Alicia Garza, co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement and host of the podcast, Lady Don't Take No, which uh, is fabulous. Uh, thank you both for being here, my friends. I want to start by playing just one other little clip from Gary Chambers. I've just been a little obsessed with him because he's been speaking a lot of truth on his social media. Here's Gary Chambers again. In East Baton Rouge Parish, there are 129,000 eligible black voters. Only 12,520 showed up to vote. In Orleans Parish, there are 145,000 eligible black voters. Only 16,000 showed up to vote. In Caddo Parish, there are 73,000 black voters. Only 6,955 showed up to vote early. There are 900,000 registered black voters. Uh, 96,000 black voters have showed up so far. That means for every black person in Louisiana right now that you see, when you see 10, only one of them voted. You know, Angie, um, there, the, the victory margin for Kennedy, Senator Kennedy, he only got like 800,000 some odd votes, meaning that there are more black voters registered to vote in Louisiana than his victory total. You've talked a lot about this, about owning our power and figuring out how to make voting connected to that. What do you make of all of this? Well, I think that that it's really simple. And this isn't a conversation about us shaming black voters. It's about us talking about our power, talking about what it will take. And I think the reality of it is for years, um, and I'm talking about Democrats because we know the Republican Party doesn't really try to reach us. They just try to profit and traffic off of whatever the Democrats may be missing. But the reality of it is, if you only engage people around election time, you may or may not get the results that you really want. You should be trying to strive for political engagement 360 with the black community, political engagement 360 with the Latinx community, we, the political 360 with the indigenous community. And the reason for that is when folks walk in their power, when they're engaged in shaping agendas, um, shout out to the work of Alicia's Black Futures Lab and the Black Census Project, which does this. It ensures that we have data that can be collected and then turned into a black agenda so that folks have things to advocate for with the folks they elect on election day. But if you just say, 
I'm coming to you in the 11th hour. I had a candidate who said, hey, I want to get on the breakfast club two weeks before the election. Well, guess what? You're probably not going to get that full demo. You've made one point of contact. We know even in marketing campaigns for, for movies, they hit us on coffee cups, on poles, on bus stops. They hit us in multiple ways to get our attention. One touch point won't survive. Clearly, this is an op-ed, Joy. I'm going to be quiet and turn it back over. Well, no, and listen, and leaving it up to our wonderful dear friend, Latasha Brown, who's happy birthday, Latasha Brown. Happy birthday. She can't do everything, right? I mean, Black Voters Matter, Alicia, does a lot. But the party, let me just read you a little bit of what Chevron Jones, I love Chevron Jones. He's one of my favorite politicians in Florida. And he's a state senator there. And he said, Democrats have taken large swaths of the electorate for granted, chased the shiny object of the day of the day from a messaging standpoint, oftentimes landing on disjointed, tone-deaf themes, empowered the same few consultants despite loss after loss and failed to build a sustained presence in organization and communities across the state. The result, 30 years of Republican control, staggering affordability crisis that's unsustainable. And this is an elected Democrat saying that, Alicia. Well, it's absolutely right, Joy. And we've been saying this for years and years and years. It is Yes, about 365-day engagement in Black communities. It's also about money and dollars and investing resources in Black communities for voter engagement, for voter education, for voter activation, for Black voter organizing. I can tell you uh, in places like Georgia, there was a lot of money moving around, but not enough money moving to organizations like Black Voters Matter who, of course, people depend on, right, to activate and energize the Black vote. But if they don't have the resources that they need to do that, uh, then we end up in this situation where we're asking, well, why didn't Black people turn out? Here's the thing, Joy. Black people are up against voter suppression that's making it harder and harder for our voices to be heard. We are also up against misinformation and disinformation. And then, frankly, we're up against this uh, uh, kind of rigged system, right, where we're not investing money from the party that wants us to turn out our votes. Joy, this week alone, I and my organization moved $2.5 million to black organizations to activate black voters the day after the midterm elections, moving all the way to 2024. I'm not doing anything that's rocket science. And certainly I can't fund this on my own. We need the party who depends on our votes to also invest in our communities. It's really just that simple. Yeah. And Jamie Harrison, I'll give him credit. He put 90 million dollars on the you know, on the road in terms of GOTV and turnout operations. Um, but real quick before we go, um, Angela Rye, I mean, I look at a race like Mandela Barnes. I look at Sherry Beasley. These were narrow losses. These were winnable races. How do we convince the party that they need to do di- to do things differently? Here's what we should first convince them of. I know that you all are watching at home and you have decided with the very white consultancy that you all have been having for decades that this is exactly why we got to rock. We got to run almost a Republican, right? A very moderate Democrat. And I'm going to tell you right now, that's not the answer. That is how you self-suppress. That is how you ensure black people don't turn out. You need dynamic candidates that speak to our issues. You need younger candidates 
who speak to our issues. You need to ensure that you are employing a whole new class of consultants who don't think the same way that you always think. It doesn't work. And we don't know what else to tell you at this point. You've got <laughs> narrow loss margins. You've got large ones. There's a lot yeah. to choose from. But you've got work to do. Absolutely. And Charles Booker, Gary Chambers, Chris Jones. There are some fantastic candidates. You got to give them some money, y'all. You can't win an election without any money. Uh, I wish we had more time. Angela Rye, Alicia Garza, thank you very much, my friends. I appreciate you both tonight. Tuesday night uh, made it even clearer that Florida is basically no longer a swing state. Until it gets organized properly, it's just not. Meaning Democrats are going to have to set their sights elsewhere in 2024, like Michigan, where they did extremely well, taking full control of the state legislature for the first time in 40 years. More on that next. While we may be weeks away from getting the complete results of Tuesday's elections, what is certain at this point is that Democrats stepped it up with democracy on the line. Just look to the swing states of Pennsylvania and Michigan, notching big wins for Democrats against some of the most extreme MAGA candidates. In Pennsylvania, not only did Democrats hold the governor's mansion and pick up a crucial Senate seat, they're just two seats away from flipping the Pennsylvania State House, which they have not held a majority in since 2010. And in Michigan, Democratic incumbents led by Governor Gretchen Whitmer all held their seats in the state's top races for governor, secretary of state and attorney general. Democrats also took control of the Michigan legislature, handing the party full power over the state government for the first time in 40 years. Joining me now is Democratic strategist James Carville. It's good to finally uh, have you on the show, James. It's it's great to have you. Glad to be here. Thank you. Let's talk about this for a second. I feel like, you know, the media has overplayed the importance of DeSantis and underplayed the victory for Whitmer. I mean, Whitmer, to me, was the biggest single individual winner on Election Day because not only did she, you know, she survived a kidnapping threat and she survived real threats to democracy in her state, got reelected by a healthy margin, and they took over the state. Your thoughts? Well, first of all, for 2024, 2028, she's already in the talk of, you know, of being a very serious presidential candidate if she runs. So I, I think people really understand what she's done and how tough she is. And that whole bunch of Michigan Democrats, my friend Senator Mallory McMurrow, uh, a bunch of these people, you know, really worked hard and did a good job, as it did in Pennsylvania. And I, I, I said uh, yeah. this morning, I guess yesterday morning, and Josh Shapiro might have had the best campaign of, of, of the whole cycle. I mean, they were very aggressive. Uh, they got enough votes, I think, to help Fetterman a lot. So, uh, yes, I think you're right to point that out. But I think Gretchen Whitmer is at the top of any conversation about any national figure in the Democratic Party. That's just yeah. a fact. Big Gretchen, <laughs> as they call her. Big Gretchen, as they call her in Michigan. I mean, if you think about it, you know, the, the, one of the things people have said is that Democrats don't really have a bench. But I look at Wes Moore in Maryland, stellar candidate. Um, as you just mentioned, Josh Shapiro, stellar candidate. It looks like they have a bench. Even the governor of California, you know, is strong candidate. One one reelection is doing a lot of amazing things in his state. Should Democrats be thinking going forward about 2024, re- redoing the Biden map and not so much being pining for Florida? Well, I don't, you know, unless something really changes, it's not going to be much pining for Florida. I mean, that was a pretty decisive win. And, you know, my friend, uh, myself, my good friend Val Deming, so I think I'll probably raise as much money in direct solicitation as far as, as anybody. And I love that. Uh, I love Val. I was hoping we'd do better. But you know, it, the the maps move around, and you know, it looks like right now we're going to pick up Senate seat. Uh, you know, keep Nevada and keep keep Arizona, which is which is huge. Yeah. So we had some, we did some really 
good things on election day. Uh, trust me, it, 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 this was a, a very uphill climb, and some of these people ran some really good, tough campaigns, and my hat's off to them. I really are. Let me ask you this. We just talked in our previous segment about some of the challenges with getting black voters out in places like Wisconsin. That was such a narrow loss. It didn't have to happen. Sherry Beasley in North Carolina, way too narrow. And even in places that were more distant, Gary Chambers pointed out the, you know, there was not much GOTV work by the state party in your home state of Louisiana. You know, Kennedy only got 800,000 some odd votes. Does the party need to do better on that score? Right. The Louisiana State Party has had a very difficult time yet the last year, and I'll just leave it at that. And you got to understand, Louisiana is about 33 percent black total population. And it's very rare if we could get the black contribution to 33, uh, that, and that never happens or seldom happens, we, we'd be in a lot better position. A state that interests me a lot is Mississippi, which is like 37, mm-hmm. maybe 38. 38% black, it only votes 30. Well, if you got, if you took your share from 30 to 38, uh, that's a lot of votes. Yep. And, and we, you know, we don't lose that bad in Mississippi. I think that, you know, it's not as many electoral votes, but I think Democrats might be better off looking harder at Mississippi than Florida. I, I don't know that. I'm just going to riff off the top of my head. But it's been very frustrating. And I think some of the previous consultants you had on, I've been trying to tell some of some of these big fundraisers, we ought to do massive GOTV, massive voter registrations in the Mississippi Delta, Louisiana Delta. You know, it, it's most of the black folks in my part of the world live close to the river. Where I grew up is probably 80 percent black and I grew up right on the river. But the, I think your consultants are making some good points, but we got to be realistic here. If we can just get share of the vote up to our share of the population. Yeah, that would that would help. we would win. We would have won and probably won in North Carolina. I have to go back and do the math. And, and I, I went in and campaigned for Sherry Beasley. I thought she was one of the best yeah. candidates. Yeah. For this cycle. She could have won. won for her it, it, those are the heartbreaking hard. ones. It's those are the heartbreaking oh, ones. Yeah. James Carville. Thank you very much. Please come back again. We really appreciate you. That is tonight. That is tonight's readout. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.